Father, we do thank you for the time that we had this week, um, being able to spend time studying your word, um, time that we had being able to see um, just who you are as you reveal it to us in scripture. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to wonder who you are or what you desire from us, that you um, give us your word um, so that we can study it and learn about your character. Um, and even, even from that, learn about who we are and how we should respond. Um, so we thank you for that revelation that you give to us, and we thank you um, for the way that we can learn from each other as well as we spend time um, listening today um, to Jason's teaching and also listening from each other in our small group time. Um, so we thank you for the way that you can form us and shape us from this time of study together. Uh, Lord, I pray for Jason. I pray that you would speak through him today. Um, I pray that you would open our hearts to be able to hear what you would have us to hear and learn from him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, ladies. How are you today? Good. We're going to be in Exodus, if you didn't know this. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to start there. But before, before we read from Exodus, I'd like to read from the book of Psalms. So you can either listen or uh, turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a psalm of thanksgiving. It is a song of praise, but it is also a psalm of um, being honest before God. And we get a little bit, Psalm 105 is a lot of the story of what we've been reading about as far as the promises in Genesis all the way through Exodus and, and what's going on there. But Psalm 106 also talks about the Exodus. And we're going to cover um, a portion of Scripture in Exodus that is summed up here in Psalms 106, Psalm 106. And I think it's kind of a, a good way to start and get our minds around this, mainly because when you think about this story that we, we kicked off, um, as far as Jenna did a great job last week, as far as the, the birth narrative and the people exiting Egypt, but also as we approach this week's text about going through the Red Sea and this deliverance, in a sense, being complete. Um, this is the story that the people are to tell the generations that follow. This is the story that they are to, to share with family and, and uh, the, the children and the grandchildren and to pass on. And in the Psalms, we get, we get some of these um, examples of how the story is passed on. And so I want to read uh, Psalm 106, verse 6 through 12, because this is kind of a summary of the passage that we're going to cover today. Psalm 106, verse 6 says, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, and then he's going to start to list how the, the uh, fathers have sinned. Verse 7, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. 
So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they, the people of God, believed his words and they sang his praise. This is the summary of what we're going to cover today. And we'll see right off the bat um, how the people, when they approach the Red Sea, begin their rebellion. I like how the psalmist says, they did not consider the wondrous works that were done in Egypt. But we see right off the bat, they start their, their rebellion, uh, which is kind of a downer, but it's all in the part of this story. So we're going to start at Exodus chapter 12. Hopefully, um, think about that psalm and what the psalmist is trying to cover and how that applies and how that calls back to what we're going to look at today. So Jenna uh, got us through the birth narrative, in a sense. Um, what I think you use the word thrust out, which I'm going to let you use that word. She has more experience, obviously, than me with, with this whole thing. But I am a father of eight children. I have been in the room uh, during the birthing process. So I'm a, I have a little bit of, ex, of experience. So I do resonate with the language. I resonate with the, uh, with the, uh, the, the picture here of the people uh, being birthed from Egypt. And we've just finished these, this 10th plague. And at the end of our text last week in verse 40 through um, 42, it was um, people, uh, the people were the you know, they were at watch. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And then we pick it up at verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger so, shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Now, we get this institution of the Passover, and it's very interesting how it's laid out. Um, just calling back to birth narrative, a lot of times after a baby is born, especially, you know, I remember after our first was born, there's this time of like, this is how you're going to try and uh, you know, manage this new human being in your life. Uh, there's this feeding that's involved. There's a schedule that you want to try and keep, and you know, all this information. And in a sense, I kind of get that here, where uh, some instructions are happening after, after the people have, been, have left Egypt. And you think about, like, just even the eating habits and, and, and the schedule, um, this introduction of this Passover and how they're going to take this feast. And it's very much anticipating what will come. It's not likely that this is, you know, what they were doing in this moment. It's not even likely that this is how they would practice this feast 
in the next uh, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It's very much looking ahead for what this feast would look like. And there's a couple things I wanted to point out to you. It talks about a foreigner. It talks about a slave. It talks about a stranger. Uh, the foreigner that is mentioned here is, is someone who's like a temporary resident or a visitor, which is different from the stranger, like mentioned in verse 48, if a stranger is a sojourn with you and would keep the Passover. Um, the stranger is really more of a, of a, of a long-term resident, a long-term uh, outsider resident. Um, it could, he could even refer to an Egyptian who would be living in their midst. So you have this, these, the mix of foreigners who are coming in and visiting, uh, strange, uh, strangers who are already living with them or living there for a longer period of time. You have slaves and you have hired workers that live with them. And, and there's all these different kind of categories of people. But what, what is what the, kind of the consistent thing that, that, that instructions are trying to communicate is that they would consider themselves um, and, and do the necessary things they need to do to be a part of Israel. And what's the main thing that is mentioned there is to kind of become part of the people? Circumcision, which is interesting because in Romans, we've been looking at that, and then Romans talking about how that's not necessary in that way. It's a matter of the heart. And that's certainly not what the instructions given to Moses and Aaron are saying. So that's something interesting to think about. But uh, we don't have time to go into all that. But that is a very key instigator or, um, you know, it, uh, idea of what it was like to be a people of Israel. So circumcision was a very important part for the, uh, the father or the man to be circumcised so they can be considered part of them. It was also something that was supposed to be taken in the house. It was something that was supposed to be taken uh, where the bones of, of the sacrifice or the lamb were not to be broken, which is... a uh, which is referred with Jesus talks when it's talking about Jesus and and uh, he's with his disciples and I believe it's in the book of John. There is that mention of how the body of Jesus would the body he's not not be broken because they would break the bones of those who are on crosses, uh, but Jesus was not going to be broken on the cross. And so there's a picture there. So we see these things pointing to Christ in this Passover feast, but it's also pointing to this community and pointing to this this. Uh, this country, these people, as being one people. And we're going to see that consistent uh, theme run throughout. So this is being set up, and it's being set up for a future uh, reality for them. Chapter 13, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So the firstborn of the mother would be considered the Lord's. And this is uh, a callback to the Passover, and it is a callback to now th 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 this, is going, this uh, firstborn is going to be offered to me, dedicated to me, and you will have an opportunity to redeem. Uh, I want to redeem your children. So he says in verse 3, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, we've heard that before, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Again, a callback to how the instructions were given to prepare, the, to prepare the food on the night of the Passover. Verse 4, today in the month of Abib, you are going out. 
And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So they're going to keep it this month every year. I believe it's around the time of March and April. So, hey, this is perfect timing for us, covering this, this story. Um, in verse 6, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall uh, be seen with you in all your territory. It's very much like we are, we are um, setting a very serious um, marker on, on how important this was for us, uh, remembrance of what this would be for our people um, as far as the, the bread is concerned and what the bread would look like. Verse 8 you shall tell your son or daughter on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep the statute as its appointed time from year to year. So you shall do this from year to year, year to year. And a couple of things I think I um, want to draw out. One is, so this, this will be a sign you will shall be assigned to you, verse 9. Um, we're not exactly sure what that is. I think this has come up before. This will be a sign, and you're like, but, but what is the specific sign? And it's, it's possible that it's just the, the bread itself, the unleavened bread. Um, but it's a sign that they, it want, they, they, uh, the Lord wants it to be all-encompassing, all-encompassing for the person. Uh, this could be uh, metaphorical, this, this imagery of, of these, uh, in this idea of having it on the forehead, on the hand, between your eyes, in your mouth. This whole, all, every part of you will communicate what I have, I have done for you. And this has actually been taken to be quite literally, I mean, if you, you could go to Israel today and still see uh, Jews with leather straps around their wrists and tying these little boxes of uh, that contain these promises, these I, this idea of tying them to your tying them to your wrist, having them on your forehead, um, that, that, that the promises and the, and remembering the acts of God would be would be all it would be prominent throughout you. And then here's here's a cool thing, verse uh, going back to verse eight. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. When I came out of Egypt, that was supposed to be shared from generation to generation to generation to generation. And that's what they would say. This is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And so there's an ownership to what had been happened, what had occurred to the generations that came before. It wasn't, it wasn't, this is what they did when our forefathers came out of Egypt. They would say that when I came out of Egypt. And so there's a belonging. Again, there's a community part of this. It's not just an individual thing, but it's all of us collectively. This is what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. That doesn't sound good. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Verse 14, and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? 
you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Again, why are we, why are we practicing these things? Why is there this ritual that they are to hap- r- practice over and over and over again? It's to give you the opportunity to say, remember what God has done for us. Remember what God has done for us. Rituals can kind of get a bad, bad rap um, in, our, in our church culture. It can seem too liturgical or it can seem too Catholic, whatever it might be. But rituals can be very important. Rituals can be very helpful and key in helping us continue to pass down traditions, passing down what God has done and being able to tell the story. And this is some, these are some things that are introduced to God's people so that they can not only tell the story, but as we see in the rest of Scripture, uh, be, a, be a, a picture of what's to come with Jesus. So it's, it's a beautiful way that the Scriptures are telling this story. Verse 15, For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So there's this idea of redemption. Honestly, I hadn't really thought much about it until I was looking at this story about how donkeys, that was never an animal you'd sacrifice. That was like a you know, that was a, that was, that was, that was like, that would be like having a dog today where it's, it's not, that's not the kind of animal. So with a donkey, you would sacrifice a lamb for that firstborn donkey. Um, but just something that interesting that caught my attention. I'd never really, never really thought about it that much, but for the firstborn sons, I redeem, you will sacrifice as a lamb for the sons. This, we see this in the story of Abraham and Isaac, and we see this in the story of Jesus the lamb, the lamb who was slain. So again, it's a callback to what has been going on in their history. It's a, it's a practice where they would remember that, and it, is a, and it is a practice that is, in a sense, a prophecy for what God's going to continue to do. Really beautiful. And gross, <laughs> right? It's just, when you think about the, sacri- the sacrificial system, um, we could talk about it for a while, but it's, it's violent. It is hard. It is really hard to imagine, really hard to picture. Um, but this is, this is something that's um, key for the, for the people of God. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. So really quickly, uh, Pharaoh lets them go, and God takes them on a detour takes them on a, uh, on a route that would not be the simplest and easiest way to go. That route was by way of the land of the Philistines, which, from what we know, Philistines weren't really there yet. So this is one of those times where the, the, writer, uh, the writers who come after Moses and, and help patch the story and help put things together, uh, helping us explain what's going on, by the way of the land of the Philistines, uh, God takes them on a different route. Why? He says, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. That already right off the bat, that even though they've gone through all this experience and seen the wondrous works of God and and been a part of um, leaving, finally leaving Egypt, um, 
there is this idea that, that God would sense in them a desire to turn around when they see war, when they see war. And to be fair, give them credit, who among us would not want to run from war? <laughs> and so he, he is fearful of, the, or he is uh, concerned about this, that God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. So think about this. You might be concerned about war. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you to a wilderness where your backs are against a sea. <laughs> this doesn't sound comforting. This doesn't sound like the best strategy to prevent themselves from experiencing war. The people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. What does that mean? What does that mean? Just said they were not ready or they would, they would, they would turn and, and run from war, but here they are uh, equipped for battle. It's possible that what, the, what is being said here is that they were in formation like a military would be as they are marching. A couple different times, and the last time I taught, um, I failed to mention this, and even today I kind of failed to mention this, that the people, um, in, in one translation, a couple times it says they, they, they left troop by troop. They left troop by troop, using this military language of how the people left Egypt. And that's possible what the writer is saying here, that the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt uh, equipped for battle or in formation as they left. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. This was something that Joseph um, had, this is, a, this is an agreement that already took place at the end of Genesis. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is such a beautiful picture as well of God's presence in this form of the cloud. Some, some have some have said this could be one cloud, one pillar, uh, that a cloud would have the fire inside, and during the day you wouldn't see the fire because of the sun, and at night you wouldn't necessarily see the cloud, uh, but you'd see the fire. Um, others have said this could be two separate pillars. Um, but either way, the point is that God is, is leading them by this theophany, by this, this manifestation of his presence here. And uh, it's a pretty powerful picture. Chapter 14, here's where we get to the, the big moment. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp, facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. So they set up camp, and, and, and God says that Pharaoh's going to realize that you're in a position where he can trap you 
They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And then it says, I will get glory, or I will gain glory by what's about to happen. Uh, one way to understand that idea of gaining glory is that I will have, there will be a weightiness to, to my works. There will be a weightiness to my presence. They will definitely feel my presence. There will be a weightiness to who I am before Pharaoh and his hosts. So verse 5, what God said is true. It happens. When the king of Egypt was told that the people have fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Pharaoh is still not, not cool with this. And it kind of comes across, at least in our ESV versions, like Pharaoh like, oh, yeah, those people, they're gone. And this idea, I think they, that when we read that they fled, or Pharaoh recognizes they fled, it's possible that he's, you know, contemplating that it was like they kept saying a three days journey, but this doesn't seem like a three days journey to me. They've really left. But he's concerned and he wants to track them down. What is this that we have done that we have let Israel go? So he made them, verse 6, ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The uh, number 600 is, from what I can tell, probably another classic hyperbolic number. Evidence shows that maybe there's 200 to 250 chariots, but there's another example of, uh, you know, storytelling here to help prove, prove a point that the Egyptian uh, chariots were coming after uh, the Israelites. Verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, just like he said he would do. And Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel while the people were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Piharath in front of Baal Zephon. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. I'll stop right there. So the, the Pharaoh and his army is coming after them, and the Israelite people are afraid. They are fearful of what's going to happen. And here is where we see that the pattern of complaining begins. And we, see, we saw that in the psalm that I read earlier, that they, uh, they rebelled at the Red Sea. They didn't start their rebellion in the wilderness. They, were, they started their rebellion here at the Red Sea. They were afraid. They, were feared, they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. This is the same, uh, same word that's used in chapter 3 that we covered many weeks ago, Verse uh, 6 and 7, when Moses is at the burning bush and he said, uh, God said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And then verse 7 says, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their suffering. God has heard their cry because of their slavery God has heard their cry because of the taskmasters. God has heard their cry 
for deliverance. And here, he hears their cry because they are afraid and they are concerned that God is not with them. They are concerned that Moses doesn't know what he's doing. And they have some ideas of what could have been better. Look at what they say. Verse 11, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What an interesting thing to say. Is it because there's no place to bury us that you've taken us out here? Like, so this is where we're going to be buried. So this is where we're going to die. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? By the way, they didn't say this. Let's just call them, call them out right now. They didn't say this. There's no record of them saying this. But there's different reasons why that might be put in. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It would be better for us. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Think about that. They have two options. They have two options that they, that they can consider for their destiny, serving the Egyptians or dying in the wilderness. And how, how often, I'm going to call back to my sermon this last Sunday, how often have we failed to enlarge our vision about what God can do? How often have we failed to imagine what God could do? Because so often we consider the two options like they did. And those two options could be something different for you. It's going to be this or it's going to be that. And we live in worry, we live in anxiety, we live in fear, or whatever it might be, and we've only got these one or two options. But, man, if they would enlarge their vision, if we would just enlarge our vision to see what God can do, there's going to be, we're going to see that there is more than just those two options. It would have been better for us to die or it would have been better for us to serve in, in uh, Egypt, to serve and keep doing what we were doing. Remember when we were crying out because we didn't want to do it? It would have been better for us to do that or die in the wilderness. Those are their two options. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, shall, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. This is so Possibly, this is possibly so, um, and, and you know, so like worshipful in the way that it's said. Maybe, and that's maybe not how he was saying it. Like, it sounds so like call to worship. It sounds so like encouraging. Sounds so like you can do this. We got this. Let's, you know, hands in. One, two, three. Go team. That's not necessarily what what Moses is doing there. It's quite possible he's like, stop talking. Don't say anything more. Stop with this nonsense. God, watch and see what God's going to do. And we see that he's saying, the Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And you read that, and you're thinking, wait, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry for me? Didn't Moses just say to the Israelite people that God's going to do something about this? Didn't Moses just intercede in the situation and say that God's got this? Why does the Lord say to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Why is he 
accusing Moses? Well, I think this possibly speaks to the fact that Moses and the people are one here. They are, they are seen as one. They are unified. They are part of one. And so the cry of the people is the cry of Moses. The argument of the people is the argument of Moses. And so the Lord speaks to Moses as if he was the people. Say, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory, or like I said before, I will gain glory, or there will be a weightiness over Pharaoh and all his host and his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So there's this prediction of how this is going to go. You're going to stretch your hand out. The sea is going to be divided. You're going to go through on dry ground, and I will harden the Egyptians so that they, they will go after you and I will get glory. Verse 19, And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was this cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. We see different, uh, different uh, descriptions of what this presence looks like. It's a cloud or it's an angel. We're not exactly sure how to, how to differenti- differentiate these and, how, and like which is what. And there's three different uh, versions of this that we see in the text. But what I think is most important for the reader and for the people of God in this moment, but what's the most important for us as readers is to recognize that God's presence is there with his people. And however, it's, however it looks, that God's presence is there. And that's something that we've tried to communicate as we've gone through this story. Exodus, in Exodus, we encounter the personal and present God who remembers his promise and delivers his people. He is a personal and present God, and he is with his people right here. And there's a cloud of the darkness, and it lit up the night, a, a cloud of darkness that lights up the night. That's, that's an interesting picture. Without one coming near the other, so the Egyptians are prevented from coming towards the people of Israel. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. Drove the sea back by a strong east wind. Some of us have, uh, you know, that that can be hard when we read that because we're like, was this a miracle or was this an act of nature? Was this a miracle of God or was it an act of nature? And I think we might have alluded to this some when we were talking about the plagues. If we didn't, we should have. But there is something about the fact that in our minds, we like to separate those two in our present-day understanding of miracles and spiritual things. It's like, it's, it's like that's a miracle or that's just like a natural thing. But God is consistently working through the natural in miraculous ways, Right? And so if there's times where we read something about the plagues and we, maybe we read a commentary or something, it's something like, there happened to be this thing going on in Egypt with frogs or whatever. It's like that shouldn't discount the fact that God was working in that situation, right? Same thing with the Red Sea. If there is a mighty wind, if there is an act of nature that is, that is, that is happening here, that does not discount, and we're going to see some of this in, in chapter 15 as I 
as I push through this as quick as I can, um, that, that, that alludes to that. But we cannot discount it. And it, like I said, this is, it's a fairly present-day, uh, current, recent thing for us to separate those two. It would not have been, it was common, it would not have been uncommon for the Israelite near, ancient Near Eastern mind to consider the, the, a, a natural, you know, an event in nature and a miracle of God being the same or working together having the same conclusion. Uh, an example of this, I think where we actually do that, where we combine the two, is, I'll go back to the birth narrative, is childbirth. How often do you see, you know, see there's a baby and like someone's like, oh, what a miracle. Now, I can be quite difficult because if I'm with people that I'm comfortable with, I'm like, it's not really a miracle. I'm, I mean, I know how this works. Like, <laughs> like it's pretty, pretty natural occurrence, this baby. But we do see it as both. There is something miraculous about a newborn baby in the process of how this baby is here with us. And yet we all know that's a very natural thing. Like, that's how it's supposed to work. So we do that, um, but sometimes when we're in the Scriptures, we want to separate it. We want to see it like, well, that was just a miracle of God. That had nothing to do with, you know, natural events. But it's like God's over nature. God can use nature for his purposes. All right, we got to move quickly. Uh, verse, and sorry if I'm speaking too fast. Verse uh, 21, um, drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Two things. One is this whole idea of clogging the wheels of the chariots. What is the one thing that can just demonstrate the might of the Egyptians? That is their military and their force. And yet here their wheels are stuck in the mud. God is demonstrating his victorious power over the Egyptian military. Their wheels are stuck in the mud and now they're afraid and they're fleeing the God of Israel because of what God is doing here in this moment. Let us flee before Israel for the Lord fights for them against us. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. All right, stop right there. The sea is back to normal. The sea is back, and uh, it has covered chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The Egyptians run into the sea. <laughs> the sea has already been flattened. The walls have already been down. There's already been Egyptians with their wheels clogged in the mud. And the sea goes back, and the Egyptians are fleeing, but fleeing into the sea. 
they are clearly confused. They are clearly in a panic. They are clearly um, going, going uh, in the wrong direction. As the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. So there's a recap there of how the waters have taken the Egyptians, but the waters stand up for the Israelites as they walk on dry ground. Thus, verse 30, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord, or we could probably say, and they had faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So they make it through. They make it through on dry ground. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 15. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang their so- this song to the Lord, saying, and I'm just going to read all the way through it, and then I'll come make some comments come, coming back to it. Uh, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you? Who is like you, O Lord, among the, go- among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pang- they tremble. pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So this song is being sung, and it is a song that is sung by the people. Uh, Some say that it might have been sung by the women because it was typical for the women to sing songs when the men would come back from battle. Some have said that it's possible that Miriam wrote this song, and uh, she is spoken of in in a verse that we're going to get to in just a little bit as a prophetess. And here is, a, here is very much not just simply a song of praise, but a word of prophecy in her song. 
in this song. And it is a song, it is a song that is declaring one thing more than anything else, that God is victorious over his enemies. That God is victorious over his enemies. He is victorious over them. Verse 1 says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. He is victorious. He is the God who can be counted on. He is the God who is faithful. He is the God who is the one who overcomes. So a couple of things just to draw out. Uh, verse 2 says, um, this is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. One, I will praise him. The idea here is I will enshrine God. I will, I will show his beauty. And then his, uh, the song goes on, my Father's God. This is a callback to the God of our ancestors, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Uh, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Victory is the Lord's. That's another thing that we will see as we look in this song. That the victory is God's. That the victory is God's more, more than any other. Look at how it, in verse 6 it says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand. And we saw earlier in chapter 14, it was Moses that was the one who was raising his hand over the sea. It was Moses that was the one that was, that was you know, giving the commands. But now here in the song, God is the one receiving the credit. And, and still, in, in continuing on in verse 6, O Lord, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Shatters the enemy. That's not necessarily a picture that you would have uh, for water. But it was, it was common uh, for in the Egyptian culture, uh, in, in military and probably uh, even just in, in, in normal life, I could imagine people doing this, that there would be, there would be pottery with the names of their um, enemies or other nations that they would want to destroy. And, and in a word of like cursing and in a way to, you know, kind of initiate that curse of that nation, they would take that pottery and they would shatter it to the ground. They would break it down on the ground and so it would shatter. And so this, this idea and this understanding is now flipped on the Egyptian enemy. Uh, that is mentioned here in verse 6. O Lord, you shatter the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It, consume, it consumes them like stubble. Here is another image, not necessarily you think of when it comes to water, but this, this idea of fire. But they are consumed. The enemy said, verse 9, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire or my appetite shall have its fill. This is the intention of the enemy that they will destroy the Israelites. But the, the song responds, but who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? And the implied, the answer to this rhetorical question is no one. No one is like you, God. No one can do this like you. Um, let's see here. What is this that I wrote down? Oh, this is cool. Um, so we get to the end of the song, the Lord will reign forever, which is this idea is that God is king. God is king will reign forever. This is the first time that we know of where God is, is mentioned with that terminology in the scriptures, that God is king. And so here, this, this idea of reigning 
starts. And also, we see a lot in this, this song about this um, looking forward to God's abode, God, his temple, his, and we, we see it with Sinai, this, the mountain of God, the place where you have, um, your hands have established, your place of abode mentioned here in verse 17. This is something, and I mentioned this early on as we were going through Exodus, this is something that's a continual theme of the scriptures, that God is establishing his residence among his people. He's establishing uh, his residence. It starts all the way back with creation, that God has created a world where he can establish residence in a temple. The creation story is like a temple narrative, temple uh, language of building a residence to be with his people. And we see this theme here in Exodus. We'll see it with the tabernacle. We see it with the temple in the, in the era of the kings. We see it with Jesus. We see it with the Holy Spirit in us. We see it in Revelation. This theme of God wanting to establish residence and be with his people is consistent. Let's finish here. Verse 19, for when the, when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. This is not the first time, right, where we've seen bookends of, of, of uh, recaps of the story. We saw it um, a couple weeks ago. Jenna and I uh, talked about it with the plagues. Uh, there's a bookend around uh, the genealogy of, of uh, Aaron and Moses. And here's another bookend. Before the song and after the psalm song, another summation of what has just happened. Verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And this, this could be like part of the summary and part of the description of when the song gets kicked off. The prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously for the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So there's that, that bookend even at the beginning of the song and the end, that God has triumphed victoriously. The horse and rider has fallen into the sea. Uh, how many of you know that cute little chorus about <laughs> horse and rider falling to the sea? I will sing unto the Lord. Horse and rider? Uh, I, I think that's how it goes. Anyways, I'm not going to make you sing it, mainly because I don't remember it exactly. But... There's, but there's a lot of songs that talk about our God being a warrior, and there's a lot of songs that talk about our God being victorious. And we see that theme running through here in this song that the people sing here in chapter 15. So we have left Egypt, we have gone through the sea, and we sing a song of praise. And that is essentially what's happening in that Psalm 106 that I read at the very beginning, that little summation. And we're going to continue to see how God's going to work in his people and how he's going to provide for them. But a lot of good stuff for conversation. I hope that you've been challenged and encouraged. But remember that God is the one who is faithful and that we can trust in him. And he's the one who's victorious. And he is victorious over sin and death. And we can receive that through Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love for us. And thank you that you are Uh, with us now. I pray that you would help our conversation to be a blessing to you and to be an encouragement to one another. May you be glorified in our lives. May there be a weightiness um, in our lives of your presence and your
uh, kindness and your grace, uh, that the people around us would feel that weightiness of your glory um, as, we, as we proclaim your truth. We thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great time with your study groups.